Hey, this is Candace Pringle, lead pastor of Effie Church, and this is our podcast. All right, written in the stars, week one. You know, I we tend to plan ahead a little for Christmas around here. I don't know if you've noticed already, but all of the stores have Christmas music. We're not really behind in this. The world plans ahead for Christmas, right? And so a couple of weeks ago, um, maybe months ago, sitting in my kitchen, praying about what I felt like we needed to hear this Christmas as a church. And I just felt like God said stars, like something to do with stars. And I began to pray and research and try to figure out what that meant. And I found, I actually looked up the phrase written in the stars. It's something we sort of say and have an idea of what it means. But when I looked it up, I found the definition to go something like this. If you believe that something is written in the stars, you believe that it will be made to happen by a force that controls the future. And suddenly, everything made sense. The whole series just sort of clicked into place for me. If you believe that something is written in the stars, you believe that it will be made to happen by a force that controls the future. Now, I've always been a little fascinated by the story of the wise men. And especially since reading a a fictional book by Ted Decker called AD 30, it's about Jesus's life and sort of an outside perspective of that. Highly recommend, by the way, definitely read that this Christmas season. It's linked in the sermon notes if you want to find it. But the book tells of this fierce people that studies the stars and, and they went out looking for the Messiah, following a star. The crazy part about the wise men to me, though, isn't that they were looking for Jesus. A lot of people were looking for him. All of the Jews were looking for him. The crazy part to me is that they actually found him. Right? I I don't know about you, but I always get so frustrated by the Pharisees reading through the New Testament. Anyone else like... (laughs) How can you possibly, the the Messiah, the son of the living God is literally doing miracles in front of your face and you can't see him. You've been waiting for him your entire lives, passed down from generation to generation are prophecies about him. You should be the only ones that do see him for who he is and yet you just can't see him. Uh, Maybe they were too busy building religion, not relationship. They were too busy looking for power and and fame, I suppose, as we so often are. (laughs) But these wise men, not only did they find Jesus, but they came to submit themselves to him in worship. They came to bless him, not to be blessed. And they obeyed God over King Herod. I mean, who were these guys, right? They seemed to do it all backwards and all right. And so we find them in the scriptures in Matthew 2. It's the only gospel that includes the story of the wise men, although a few of the others include the birth of Jesus. But Matthew records in chapter 2, verse 1, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. 
Look, I researched these guys this week. I wanted to know more. We, we only get this in a few more verses, really, in Matthew. And so after finding out all that I could about these guys, I realized we don't actually know that much. <laughs> we don't actually know that much. We, we have some traditions surrounding them. There's a whole song, right? We three kings of Orient are. But even that song says there's three of them. The scriptures don't actually say that there are three of them. That's a tradition surrounding them. We generally think that they were three because there were three types of gifts described later. But there could have been many more. Could have been a whole family that came, not just three. We also tend to see them in the manger scene, right? In the nativity scene. In in every nativity set, there's three wise men. And they're gathered around the manger. Baby Jesus, everybody's there. But probably they didn't show up from anywhere to, to two weeks to two years after Jesus was born. So we don't actually know when they showed up. It says... They came to a house a little later in this passage, so it probably wasn't the night of Jesus' birth. Don't get me wrong, I don't think nativity scenes are like teaching bad theology. It's just representative of the story. But we do know some things. There's a lot we don't know. There are at least four things that we do know that we can gather from the actual scriptures about these guys. Number one, they were probably rulers of some sort. We call them kings, but they probably weren't kings in the sense that you're thinking of a king, right? We tend to think about kings in like the very English and Knights Templar castle type of way. <laughs> they probably weren't that kind of king. King Herod was sort of more what we would think of as a king, a typical king with the, the army and the empire behind him. King Herod was actually Jewish, but thought to be sort of a sellout by most Jews. Most Jews hated him because of the Roman Empire, he sort of manipulated him into doing what they want instead of what the Jews want. And so King Herod was more of the typical king that we think of. These guys were just desert people. <laughs> that sounds bad. <laughs> but they, they lived out in the desert. They probably had very large families and, and some sort of success in business. That was tended to be how the Persians had rulers. They weren't necessarily kings like we think of them, but they were rulers of some sort. They were also, number two, they were devout followers of God, even if they weren't Jewish. Many believe that they they were Persians because of their gifts. They were from the desert. They, They weren't Jews necessarily because most Jews had to live near Jerusalem to fulfill the requirements of their religion. The word for wise men used in the Bible is actually magi, which refers to an ancient group of astronomers and priests belonging to the Zoroastrian religion in Persia, which is actually still practiced to this day. It's a really fun sort of rabbit trail to go down to study the Zoroastrian religion. It's also linked in your sermon notes, but it's it's remarkable how similar it is to ours. They have some theology that's a little weird, sure, and they have different names for God and good and evil and all of that, but it sounds a lot like a creator of heaven and earth and the forces of of darkness and light. It, It sounds remarkably close to Jehovah God that we know. And so that's who they worshiped, but they found the Messiah. I'm, I'm sort of 
fascinated by them for this reason. They seem like really genuinely good guys. Maybe they didn't have all of their facts correct or all of their theology correct, but they found the Messiah. The Jews didn't. They showed up in town asking, hey, where's the newborn king of the Jews? You all should know this. He's going to be your king after all. Nobody could help them. They had to do it by themselves. They had to go find Jesus by themselves. I think that's really sad, actually. These guys out on their own, out in the desert, studying the stars, figured it out. But God's people themselves, they couldn't see him. Most most people wrap, in most cultures, wrap their religions around something sort of selfish or or power-hungry. One guy's in charge and he sort of warps religion, right? But not these guys. They just found Jesus by studying the stars all on their own. They just pursued truth without the need to be told or taught. There's a lesson in and of itself there. We can learn from these guys that not everyone wants truth enough to inconvenience themselves to find it. I hear a lot of excuses about (laughs) coming to church. My my spouse didn't want to come last week, so did you want to come? (laughs) Could have left him in bed. I mean, (laughs) come to church anyway. Why are you basing your own relationship with Jesus on somebody else? You're not going to answer for them on Judgment Day. You're going to answer for you. Not everybody is willing to be inconvenienced. Don't base it on someone else. It shouldn't hold you back. Or some people will say, you know, that, that my friend that usually brings me was out of town last week. Or, or my friend that invited me wasn't here, so I didn't feel like I should come. We can be family for you too, right? Don't rely on someone else to get what you need. It's between you and God, not anyone else. These guys also fascinate me because, you know, I hear a lot through the thread of scripture that all creation cries out to God, right? All creation points to God. Even if you don't have all your theology or information correct, every human on this earth can have an understanding of who the creator is just by studying creation. And yet so many people all over the world get it wrong, right? Like I said, the power-hungry stuff, the selfishness, it creeps its way into our religion and view of the world. But these guys got it right, right enough to find the Messiah when no one else was looking for him or even believed that he existed yet. They figured it out. They were good guys, devout followers of God. The third thing we, we can tell about them from the scriptures is that they were called wise men because they studied the stars. It was basically a science back then. They were learned. They were educated. They were enlightened beyond the usual person. And since science always proves the existence of God and his plan, what they found led them straight to Jesus. Psalm 19.1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. You know the difference between astronomy and astrology, right? Astronomy is just the study of the stars and the heavenly bodies. Astrology believes that there is an unknown force out there, unnamed, beyond reach, unfathomable, that controls the future. 
we play with these words a lot, you know, in, in literature and science, like fate and evolution and the universe and mother nature. The force, unnameable force that seems to control everything. We're all just sort of talking about the same thing, aren't we? I just happen to believe he has a name. And he wants to be known and he has a plan. I believe he has a name. God controls the future. God wrote the stars. I'm actually, when you look at it that way, it's sort of hard to believe that any real atheist actually exists. (laughs) Right? Sometimes people say they don't believe in God, but really they don't want to believe in the God of any of the religions that are out there, but they believe in something. There's a, there's a force. There's something we want to believe in magic, something beyond our, our control or understanding. We want to believe, even if we just can't bring ourselves to. God is real. God is good. And he loves us so much. He, he created the stars for us, by the way. Genesis 1, 14 says, Then God said, Let the lights appear in the sky to separate the day from night. Let them be signs to mark the seasons, days, and years. Let these lights in the sky shine down on the earth. And that is what happened. God made two great lights, the larger one to govern the day and the smaller one to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set these lights in the sky to light the earth, to govern the day and night, and to separate the light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. We base time itself, our calendar year, on the stars. God's system for marking the seasons. Time itself is based on God's system. He set it up this way because he is good. He loves us and he wanted us to be able to mark the time. So we know that they were rulers of some sort. We know that they were devout followers of God, even if they weren't Jewish. And we know that they were called wise men because of how they studied the stars. But here's the one that struck me the most. The fourth thing that I can tell about them from this passage in Matthew 2 is that they not only journeyed across the desert, they gave up time with their families and all of that, but they came to bless the Messiah. Not to be blessed by him. I'm going to let you sit with that one for a second. Because honestly, when I realized that, it sat me back for a minute. They came to bless the Messiah, not to be blessed by him. These men didn't come after Joseph and Mary had done most of the hard work by raising the boy. Right? And he was a full-grown man able to bless them. Later in the Gospels, we see crowds and and hordes of people coming after Jesus to be blessed by him, to receive miracles, to be fed, literally, by him. That's not what these guys did. They came to be a blessing, to make their lives, Joseph and Mary's lives, a little easier and to enable the work of the ministry. They came to be a part of God's perfect plan, to help that plan in any way that they could. They came to worship and to give and to serve the king, not to be blessed by him for nothing in return that I can see. And we're going to see just how they blessed him as we read through the rest of this story. 
But notice that not everyone was that willing to bless the Messiah. Not then and not now either. Matthew 2 verse 3 says, King Herod was deeply disturbed. Remember, he was a Jewish guy. Deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. Haven't you been waiting for the Messiah for hundreds of years? What's going on here, guys? He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem, in Judea, they said. For this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you, who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. This, of course, is a prophecy from the book of Micah. They would have known and studied for generations now. And it shows that Jesus was always the plan. From the dawn of time, Jesus was always the plan. God has had a plan for humanity to be returned to right standing with him ever since the dawn of creation. It's always been written in the stars because it's written in creation by the very breath of God. And if you still don't believe me, I have another proof. It's actually super interesting. Did you know the chapter right before this names out the the genealogy names of Jesus? Right? It's listed in a couple of of the Gospels, but it's from Adam the whole way to Jesus. It tells all the names of every generation from Adam to Jesus. And usually we skip over that part because who wants to try to pronounce all those crazy names? Right? (laughs) Good to know, but skipping that. However, when you actually study the meanings of every name, it gets really interesting. And it shows that God actually has a plan. This is just the first, what, dozen? But you can see all of them, again, linked in the sermon notes. Check it out. So it's God, Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. And here is what the names mean when all put together. The God-man is appointed. A mortal man of sorrow is born. The glory of God shall come down, instructing that his death shall bring those in despair comfort and rest. What does that sound like? Does that sound like God didn't have a plan? Does that sound like he's been planning this since the dawn of creation? If anything was ever written in the stars, it was Jesus. God not only willed it to happen. He made sure it happened. And he told the story with every generation. Look up the rest of them. The story continues. It keeps going. And we're going to continue this story. Verse 7 says, Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men. And he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, Go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. This was a sneaky little lie, of course. After this interview, the wise men went on their way. And the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary. And they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests. Did you catch that? They saw him with his mother. They bowed down down and worshiped him and then they opened their treasure chests and they gave him gifts of gold frankincense and myrrh when it was time to leave 
they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. These guys defied the king's orders directly. (laughs) Who were they? (laughs) I mean, uh, they're fascinating. They gave him the best gifts. The best gifts. Gifts fit for a king. And their instinct when seeing the Messiah as a child was to open their treasure chests and give him everything. Is that your instinct? Because honestly, I wish I could say that it was mine. I wish I could say that I come into the presence of the God without my hand out a little bit. (laughs) Right, without saying, God, could you bless me today? And could you help me out? And could you anoint me? And could you look at all of my plans for my life and give me success? And could you give me abundance and deliverance and provision? <laughs> like, hand out, God, right? That's all I'm ever asking for from him. These guys, when seeing the king, instead of having their hand out to him, they gave him stuff. Abundantly. <laughs> gave him good stuff. These valuable items were standard gifts to honor a king or a deity in the ancient world. Gold as a precious metal, frankincense as perfume or incense, and myrrh as anointing oil. The book of Isaiah, when describing Jerusalem's glorious restoration, tells of nations and kings who would come and bring gold and frankincense. And this is a quote from Isaiah 60. They will bring gold and frankincense and shall proclaim the praise of the Lord. You can't get away from prophecies when it concerns Jesus. It's a constant thread throughout the Old Testament. Jesus is either patterned, present, or promised throughout the Old Testament. He's there on every page, either our need for him, or he's physically there, or he's prophesied to be there. He's always been the plan. If anything was ever written in the stars, it's the Messiah. And in addition to the honor and status implied by the value of the gifts of the Magi, scholars think that these three were actually specifically chosen for their special symbolism about Jesus as well. Gold representing his kingship, frankincense, a symbol of his priestly role, and myrrh, a prefiguring of his death and embalming. An interpretation made popular by the common Christmas carol, We Three Kings, right? Do you know this song? There was like a a Pirates of the Caribbean epic version in the bumper. But it goes, let's see, the first verse, well, I don't know if it's the first verse, but the first verse that talks about the gold, frankincense, and myrrh says, Born a king on Bethlehem plain, gold I bring to crown him again. Do you know it? King forever ceasing, never over us all to reign. Oh, do you know it? Star of wonder, star of night, star of royal. You don't know it. Westward leading, still proceeding, guide us to that perfect light. Good job. I'm not a songbird like Tommy or Aaron up here, but we pulled it off. So, gold. Gold was the first one that they brought. Gold may have been the first metal that human beings encountered because it didn't need smelted. Usually it's found in like a river or a um, stream somewhere, right? Rather than mixed in ore and, and smelted down, we discovered gold much earlier than other metals. 
people have always valued it for its luster, its beauty, its malleability, right? You can make it into many things. It's resistance to corrosion and tarnish. And these attributes also led ancient civilizations throughout the world to associate gold with royalty, immortality, and deity. It was first used in minted currency in the 7th century B.C., so it had been around for a while. Gold from the wise men had frequently been mentioned as possibly being very useful in helping Joseph and Mary escape their flight to Egypt from Herod later on. The other gifts could have easily been sold for a very good price as well. How's the rest of the song go? Do you know? <laughs> I know these Christmas carols are tough, but... Uh, the next verse says, Frankincense to offer have I, incense owns a deity nigh, prayer and praising all men raising, worshiping God on high. Oh, just kidding, I won't make you sing it again. Just kidding, just kidding. Originating in Arabia or Northern Africa, frankincense is actually dried resin from trees. <clears throat> it's used in perfume and incense for thousands of years. Historically, frankincense was a highly valued commodity. It did not come cheap. <laughs> it was expensive. When burned as an incense, it was often valued for its aroma as well. It also had sort of disinfectant qualities. It repelled insects and other pests, so it was useful. Frankincense was used in ancient Israelite temple worship too, though. And this is the part that I found most interesting. It wasn't just any gifts brought to Jesus. They all had specific meaning. And in the temple, throughout the word, it's actually mentioned specifically. In Exodus 30, frankincense is mentioned as an ingredient in the perfume of the sanctuary. In Leviticus 2 and 16, it's mentioned as something that came along with the meat offering, which was part of the burnt and peace offerings. And in Leviticus 24, 7, it comes along with something called shrewbread, which does not sound super, no, shoe bread doesn't, S-H-E-W, <laughs> shoe bread doesn't sound super appealing, but that's what they did. And it, it was in the outer compartment of the tabernacles, burned as a memorial in the presence of God himself. Burning incense in the temple represented prayer as well as we see in Psalm 141 too. So it's all throughout the Old Testament. It's very symbolic of Jesus's priestly role. What's the third one? Myrrh. Myrrh is mine. It's bitter perfume. Breathes a life of gathering gloom. I like this verse the best. Sorrowing, sighing, bleeding, dying, sealed in the stone cold tomb. A little creepy sounding. I know. Stone cold tomb, bleeding, dying. <laughs> That's how the song goes. But this one is interesting for that. Myrrh is also a dried resin from Arabia and Northern Africa. It, it comes from like thorny shrubs and trees though. But it's used in perfumes, incense, and medicines for thousands of years. The word literally means bitter in Arabic. It's been valued for its aroma as well as its use as an antiseptic, analgesic, which is like a, a topical painkiller and other medicinal qualities. But by Jesus's time, it was mostly used as an embalming item. It meant death, kind of. <laughs> Could the wise men have really known that the king of the Jews was going to die and be resurrected? It's so intriguing to me. I'm, I'm fascinated by this concept. We see myrrh in other places throughout the word. 
Exodus 30, it was used for the kings. It was holy anointing oil for consecrating priests. Um, it's mentioned in the Esther story, Queen Esther, Esther 2.12, and it's also used in actually, literally, Jesus' embalming story in John 19. Was it the same myrrh <laughs> that the wise men brought when Jesus was just a baby? So interesting. You know, the wise men's gifts are fascinating because they say a lot about how our gifts should be brought to Jesus today too. The wise men's gifts were useful and generous first and foremost. Some of the best gifts we can give our Savior are useful gifts, generous gifts. They're our time and our talents. These guys journeyed across deserts to get to Jesus. They put in their time and their talent. We can do the same. Our time and our talent can be used in service of others in the church and outside of it. But when we come into the church, we often hope that people will serve us, right? People will give to me. And like I said, we come into worship with our hand out to God a little bit. Instead of saying, how can we be used by God? How can we serve others? Who can I come in and encourage today? How can I be used in the church today? Do you know there are people that show up here every single week, 2 o'clock on a Saturday afternoon to get ready for the evening, 7 a.m. on a Sunday morning to get ready for the day, after working their 40-hour-a-week regular jobs and being in here all week. Do you know they spent hours this week making these awesome set designs for Christmas, right? And the musicians that are practicing the songs all week long to prepare and then spend all weekend serving us as a church, not to mention the, the people back in kids' ministry that are learning Bible lessons all week to preach the gospel to kids, or, or the people scrubbing toilets or, or serving on finance teams you didn't even know existed, right? People here all throughout the week being useful, not asking for the, the fame or, or the thank you or the pat on the back for it, just here to serve. These guys took time out of their own personal schedules. The wise men, they journeyed to bless the king, receiving nothing in return. Are you that useful and generous to the church? To the vehicle God now uses to preach Jesus? If the church never gave you anything back, would you still serve it? It's challenging. <laughs> challenges me a little bit because we often talk about the, the benefits of church, the what you can receive from it. We don't often talk about what we can bring to it. Do you know there's sort of an unfortunate flip side to this? <laughs> Some of us, we know that we should give to the church, but it really only comes at a convenient time for us. We give when we no longer have any use for the things that we're giving. I heard a story once about a missionary closet at somebody's church where people would give their clothes that they no longer wanted or used and they put them in the missionary closet and anytime traveling missionaries would come in and speak or whatever, they would send them to the closet and say, take anything, we, we just want to bless you. But they'd go into the closet and it was all like <laughs> terrible, <laughs> terrible items from the 70s or something like stuff nobody would wear anymore. And the pastor, I think it was a new pastor that came in. I'm sort of forgetting the details of the story. But they, they were like, how are we honoring the people that are giving their lives to the gospel 
by giving them just our leftovers. We need to be giving them our best. Who will go out and buy them clothes specifically meant for them? Wouldn't that be a better use and, and way to honor those guests? Not our leftovers, but our best. We do this as the church sometimes, honestly. We, we think, you know, we want to give and our hearts are in the right place, but we, we don't actually take the time to go and find out what the community actually needs. So we give them things we think it needs and then nobody cares. Right? We, we build new parks, but the old park is the one that everybody uses and it needs cleaned. You could have just cleaned the old park as a blessing to the community instead of build a new one, right? Stuff like that. We, we do this as the church all the time. We should be solutions looking for problems and we should put in the work to figure out what the problem is before we go about solving it. We're actually aiming to do this this year and next. We want to be a solution in our community. We want to find our niche and go at it with everything that we have and solve it for the community to be a blessing, an actual blessing on the community. I even see this internally, though, a little bit. We get up here occasionally and we present a need in the church, right? We need kids ministry workers. We need youth ministry workers. We need greeters or cafe or media team or whatever it is around here. We, we need the, all these people. It's the best ministry in the church. They're all the best ministry in the church. And we need amazing people to serve there. And after services, so often, people will come to me like, hey, I really think the church should have this ministry. You know, that, that speech you gave earlier inspired me. I, I think the church should have this ministry, something that doesn't exist currently. And I'm like, okay, yeah, you should definitely, you should start that. And they're like, oh, no, I, I, I uh, and they back away very quickly. I didn't mean that. I meant you should do it. Well, I just explained my needs of ministries that do actually exist right now and need you don't have the time to start a new one when I have all of these other needs, right? People want to sign up for ministries that don't exist. Be useful. Give the useful thing, the generous thing. Find out what it is that your church needs, actually needs, and go fill it. Right? Most often it happens with the Freedom House, to be real honest. It's not up and running right now, and I have so many people that genuinely want to give to it, but there's nowhere to give to it right now other than financially. So go minister to kids, right? Love those kids back there. Preach the gospel to them. Maybe you'll be the one person in their life that preaches Jesus. Maybe you'll be able to prevent an addiction situation down the road. You never know. Pour into them. Use that energy towards something useful. Give into the church in a useful way. Secondly, their gifts, the wise men's gifts, were not only useful and generous, they were precious and valuable. In their offering to the Savior, the wise men gave him things that were rare and valuable. They offered him the best gifts they knew how to give. And as we approach the Savior with our offerings of, of time and service and material means, we have to always remember to give the best. You know, I think most people take the verse, um, don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure <clears throat> as an excuse to not give at all. I say, oh, well, I, uh, they pressured me to give, so I don't have to. Go about their way. That's not actually what that means. 
right? It actually means find a way to give cheerfully. It goes on to say, don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure, for God loves a cheerful giver. He loves a cheerful giver. Doesn't mean he, he wants you to hold back just because you're being pressured. It means he wants you to find your why and give it cheerfully. He wants you to give it as a blessing to the king, to be proud to give it, to feel privileged to give it. We say that a lot around here, right? It is a privilege to give, pour in to the kingdom of God. It's a privilege that God uses us in that way. He chooses to use imperfect people to accomplish his work on the planet. That is a privilege. We get to give. We don't have to give. I think it means to give because you want to bless the king not because you feel guilty about it. I think it means always keeping in the forefront of your mind why you give. To see the kingdom spread through the church, to see more people come to Jesus, to bless the organization that Jesus invented to save the world. Find your why. Literally any of those will work. I just gave you three. Find your why. Why do you give to bless the king? Not only were they useful and generous and precious and valuable, but the gifts the wise men gave were also respectful and worshipful. The gifts of the wise men brought, the gifts the wise men brought were the kinds of gifts they would have brought to a king. Jesus Christ is indeed our king and so much more. As we contemplate what he has done for us and what he offers us, There's no choice but to be filled with awe and gratitude and reverence. We should always honor and revere him for that atoning sacrifice, his grace, his mercy, his love. We show our love back to him by bringing him the best. Giving to him is an act of worship. Caring for each other is an act of worship. I used to think that the temple sacrifices in the Old Testament were sort of useless, actually. It's a different culture, different historical context. I didn't understand why you had to bring an innocent animal to die. Like, doesn't that seem like such a waste, God? (laughs) But after studying them, I realized sacrifices were actually the main source of sustenance for the priests. The ones that served in the temple that served the people. God had built into his systems of sacrifices a way to provide for his servants. And if you think about it, it's such a heart shift. The reason you'd be bringing a sacrifice was because you were selfish, right? And now you have to sacrifice something of your own and shift your heart toward service. Isn't it beautiful the way God works that way? In the context of today's text, Mary and Joseph were the ones serving God by raising Jesus. They were the ones sacrificing. And God built in a way through the stars and a weird people living out in the desert. He built in a way to provide for them abundantly. Maybe today God is telling you to give abundantly. And I guarantee you if he is, He will use it 
to enable the work of the ministry. Notice I did not say, I guarantee he will bless you back abundantly. Although I believe that. I honestly believe that God will bless you back abundantly, but maybe we got to shift our focus a little. Maybe we have to shift it to provision for the church, for the church's sake, not for our own. For other people's sake, not for selfish reasons, but understanding that God will use it to enable the work of the ministry, that he will use it to set other people free as you've been set free, that he will provide for his servants through it and he will spread the gospel because that is what he does. And anything put in God's hands is productive. Anything. Why wouldn't you want to give it over to him? As we learned last week, we don't have to know the whole plan to trust that God has this. We just have to be obedient, putting one step in front of the other, giving him whatever he puts in our hands, submitting to him wholeheartedly. This year, as we look forward and toward the end of another year and celebrate the birth of our Savior, we're going to do this together as a church. The very last weekend of the year, December 28th and 29th, we're going to bring our best, our best gifts, our best service to each other, our best worship. Instead of that week being a low point for us, as it often is in the after Christmas haze, we're going to use that weekend as a time to look back and reflect upon all the things God has brought us through and look forward to all the things God is going to bring us to. We're going to honor him with the best that we have because we, he wrote our salvation in the stars because he's calling everyone into his family and he's using us to get them here. He's going to use this church, this family, this people group to be a vibrant example of godliness, to be a passionate example of love, to be a selfless example of service. And we're going to change the world through the message of the gospel and nothing can stand in our way because the same God who wrote our history in the stars is the same God writing the future. There is a force that controls the future and his name is Jesus. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you made a decision to follow Jesus, please let us know by going to fv.church slash I-N-N. And remember to download our app for more content and helpful links.
God spoke and he gave us light. He had a plan from the beginning of creation to bring us a moment where he would deliver the greatest gift ever given in the history of creation. That moment is perfectly communicated through Jesus in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave, that he gave his only son, that anyone, anyone who believes in him will not die, but have life, life eternally. Candace talked to us about the importance of giving and our spirit and heart in it, but every gift given to our God is always in response to his perfect and best gift of Jesus. Maybe you're here today and you you haven't received that gift. The funny thing about a gift is it can be extended and not received. Can you think of a bigger insult than you spending the time to purchase the perfect gift for someone, wrapping it and preparing it, and then presenting it to them only for them to say, no, I refuse. Our God presents to you a gift today, a gift of life, eternal life. Will you receive it? Maybe... This is a gift you've accepted before, but like so many gifts given on Christmas, you put it in your closet and you forgot about it. And it's gotten dusty and neglected. And maybe this morning, it's time for you to take back your salvation. It's time for you to remember the gift that was given to return to your Savior. I want to extend just one response this morning. Will you receive the gift of salvation for the forgiveness of your sins so that you can have a new and eternal life? Maybe you've received it before, but you have forgotten and neglected it so much it seems as though you are the same you were before. And today you need to pick back up and receive that gift. You need to come back to your God, your Savior because his name is Jesus the name written in the stars for you see Jesus was born then he lived the perfect life he died on the cross and he rose again and you can be forgiven if you accept and believe that fact if you confess with your mouth that he is Lord God will forgive you he will put Jesus' righteousness on you and give you a new life so if you're here today in just a moment I'm going to count to three, giving you an opportunity to raise your hand in response to say, I need Jesus. Whether it's for the first time or you're returning, whether you're coming back and running to a Lord with open arms, raise your hand up in response to receive the best gift ever offered. So would you close your eyes in this moment?
bow your heads to provide a place for individuals to respond. This is a moment looked forward to by our God. He's been anticipating this, looking forward to it with tears in his eyes, waiting for you to come to him and receive the gift he prepared. One, will you receive it? Two, are you coming back now? Three, raise your hand if you need salvation and forgiveness. Raise it up high to your Savior, saying, I will receive you. I believe in you. I will follow you. Keep your hand up high. Right now, the ushers, they're bringing you a small piece of paper with some next steps that you need to take in your following of him. You see, you've received this gift, so now you can follow him from this day forward. You can live that new and eternal life. Right now, the angels are rejoicing in heaven. Jesus is celebrating with you because he has looked forward to this moment for you for so long. We have a Savior. We have good news. And his name is Jesus. Let's sing a little bit more. given the greatest gift, the best gift. Candace rolled out for you our vision for the rest of this year, that for the month of December, we want to prepare ourselves to bring the best gift. And she mentioned a verse I want to read right now, 2 Corinthians 9, 7 through 8. You must each decide in your own heart how much to give, and don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. For God loves a person who gives cheerfully, and God will generously provide all you need. This passage, as Candace explained, is often used by individuals as an excuse that I, I can't give cheerfully or I don't have enough to give, but I think it's actually originally intended for a different purpose. See, there's a key word in there that I want to point out. You must each decide in your own heart how much to give. Not what is enough, not how little, not how do I get by. How much? What is my best? How can I give my best so I can give it cheerfully? I think we give reluctantly because we are giving barely enough. 
and it feels like it won't even make a difference? Have you ever given a gift that cost you something great and you couldn't wait for them to open it because you knew what it cost? How much more cheerful are you to give a loved one a gift that cost you something? But when we give an empty, re-gifted present and they open it, even when they smile, we go, yeah, it wasn't that much. It was, I just had it laying around. We must each decide how much to give. So this month, we should decide how much to give. We're going to come together December 28th and 29th here in this sanctuary, remembering everything that God has done throughout the year, looking back over all the series, all the miracles, all the, all the memories of the year, and then we're going to present to our God the best gift we've given this year. My family is restructuring our Christmas budget and our giving so that our God gets our best gift. I want to bless my children, believe me, but I want to bless my Savior. I want to set an example and a standard in my life. Let's give the best gift, the best gift God has ever seen here so that we can know his value to us. Those wise men, they presented a chest of gold to a baby. What could they possibly have expected in return? But they have been remembered generation after generation in the retelling of the birth of our Savior. Let's present a gift that will be remembered by our God in heaven. Our best gift. Spend this time this month in prayer, carefully considering what you can give by the end of the year. We're all stewards of what God has given us, and we must each carefully consider how much we can give. But let's give sacrificially to our Savior, not expecting anything in return, but knowing that He will always provide all our needs according to His riches and mercy. Can we do that together? Before we go from this place, I do want to remind you, you made a decision to follow Jesus. There is a small table in the back designated just for you. Stop in that I'm in table. Let them know you made a decision. Tell somebody so you can take your next steps following the perfect life, the, the eternal life that Jesus has in store for you. If, if you need prayers, some prayer members are going to be available here at the front of this altar at the end of service, right here at the front of the stage. If you're new here, stop by the serve desk. Get to know somebody. Let's continue to remember what our God has done for us and what it means to give for him as we stand in prayer. Would you stand as we close our services out? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the gift that keeps on giving your son, for his grace and his goodness, for the gospel message of hope that is the reason we are gathered. I thank you for these individuals who have responded to your gift of salvation. Let this become the day they remember, that they will write down December 1st in the front of their Bible, that they will remember this moment, this great gift from your son, so that they will never, never, never forget your gift. Help each and every one of us as we prayerfully consider the gift we will present on December 28th and 29th. Let it be our best gift to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Freedom Valley, thanks for watching with us. We'll see you guys next week.